0: Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Digital Bulletin Podcast. I'm Romilly Broad and as ever, we're all about inspiring technology leaders. That's something we try to do ourselves via our website and magazine and social media, etc. But really, it's a description of the people we get to meet and there's very few technology leaders as inspiring as the person I got to speak to for today's episode. Now, I was lucky enough to attend the Every Woman in Technology Awards in London earlier this year, and the winner of their Woman of the Year Award was Avanade CEO Pam Maynard. Avenard, as if you didn't already know, is a $2 billion tech giant, a joint venture between Microsoft and Accenture set up Uh, about 23 years ago now. Pam joined as CEO in 2019 and it's fair to say that her tenure began with something of a baptism of fire. Just weeks after she started we saw the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic and then that in turn was swiftly followed by the social upheaval following the death of George Floyd. But as I discovered during our conversation Pam seems to be built from a special combination of things that perhaps made her uniquely suitable to face challenges such as those, but also very well suited uh, to continue to drive the success that Avenard has experienced over the last few years. Uh, we talk about her background, her childhood as the only black girl in the village, as she puts it, uh, her parents, her mum in particular, who uh, snuck away in the middle of the night from Barbados to join the Windrush Uh, generation arriving in the UK. We talked about all the things that make a person capable of leading a global technology company like Avanade and she has done that so successfully in fact that the company was named in the top three of Newsweek's 100 most loved places to work last year. It's a fascinating conversation and I hope you enjoy it. I began by asking Pam to give us a quick potted history of her career to date.
1: I started my career at Oracle and uh, joined Oracle because of the sense of entrepreneurialism, innovation when I went in for my graduate interview and uh, and also the fact there were going to be 100 graduates starting at the same time which I found incredibly exciting and it was at Oracle where I really started to understand tech. I spent five years at Oracle going through the typical technology Kind of career life cycle, so developer, analyst, or well, designer, analyst, project manager, program manager. I was headhunted to EY, and um, at EY, I really found what excited me in terms of my career, which was that intersect between strategy and technology. So I joined a technology team in um, in EY, which was focused on different industry groups, so utilities government, uh, financial services. And we were there to help to bring strategies to life through technology. Loved it. Um, Maybe you remember, maybe you might be a little bit too young, but EY Consulting got sold to Capgemini. And so from there, EY ended up in Capgemini. And then um, I took, I stepped out actually. So around 2000, I stepped out and joined a startup with some Oracle friends. So it was just post startup. And they were looking at how they could scale the business. And I only spent a year there because we didn't scale the business effectively. We ended up winding the business up, and I got headhunted back to Capgemini. And then in 2008, I was headhunted to Avenard. And I went into Avenard to lead te- technical teams. Uh, and then also to help Avenard w- to create its own sort of presence in the market and its own technology propositions in the market, what we call direct to market, versus working with Accenture and providing Microsoft services through Accenture to Accenture's client base. And uh, within two years, I was promoted to general manager of the UK business. And that wasn't straightforward. I had to be interviewed for the role. I did one of these leadership assessments. Uh, Russell Reynolds. Pro, it was a Russell Reynolds process, and they said to the Avenard leadership at the time. Yeah, you could place a bet on her. Yeah, you know she she's never run a she's never run a business before. Um, but you could place a bet on her, and they did. And within two years, I was running Europe, Africa, and Latin America. Uh, back then, Africa was South Africa. Latin America was really just Brazil. We weren't in any of the other geographies in those two continents. And then I um. And I remember, I think I was in Johannesburg. And I remember speaking to Adam, the CEO, and saying, look, you know, this is too vast. How do I run Europe? And these two kind of outliers in terms of South Africa and Brazil, I said it's too big a geographic area. I think I need to concentrate on Europe. There is a new geographic structure going to place called growth markets, which is the high kind of octane geographies. Um, I'll focus on Europe. So I did that role for another four years and then I had this conversation, one of those personal development conversations that you have which terms of what next with Adam and then with one of my mentors as well. And they were saying, look, if you're going to really progress in technology, you've got to live outside of the UK and you need to move to the US so you um, can really yes. earn the US market. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. I'll be based in New York. Um, no, no, no. You know, we want you to move to Seattle. So, and that was a big, big change for me. I was well out of my comfort zone. Uh, I knew nobody in Seattle called Avenard's headquartered there, but I didn't have any mm. friends, family there. Um, And so I spent three years, uh, almost three years there, and then I was promoted to CEO in September 2019.
0: And here we are. And then the next thing you're doing is picking up awards <laughs> and doing all, all of that good stuff. But um back in 2008 when you first joined Avenard, Avenard was still relatively young at that point I think it was founded maybe seven or eight years prior to that but talking of young let's go even further back right so Pam the person was formed much earlier than all of that and I, I think that would be kind of interesting because obviously you're kind of special in a number of ways um how did it all begin? Tell us about your, your family and your origins, if you like, and your childhood. What do you think it was back then that created, that formed the person that was so capable of achieving what you have done?
1: So I, my parents uh, came to the UK. Let's start there. They came to the UK from the West Indies. They're both from Barbados, but they actually met here in London through a family contact. Um, and they came here as part of the Windrush generation.
0: Right. There's a whole nother story there. There is a whole Uh, nother story there. My mother,
1: um, was a nurse. So she started to train as a nurse and my father, a bus driver. Now, my mum is a very interesting character because, um, when she came to the UK, she said to her mum her mum thought she was going off to the cinema and (laughs) what she actually did was boarded a flight and flew to London which says something about my mum and what she has instilled in me through my childhood and then into adulthood and still today because my mum is one of my greatest mentors um and you know the point of which my mum and dad had me and my sister, who's 16 months younger than me, so I'm the eldest of three. Uh, my mum said, you know, it'd be real, I think it'd be better for our family for us to move out of London.
0: That's kind of bold, actually, at that time.
1: It is very bold at that time, because they were very safe. You know, they lived in a bedsit in London, surrounded by family. Um, but there was an opportunity that the government was offering in terms of, you know, moving to new towns, um and um sort of council housing option opportunity etc which she took she thought this would be a really good thing it'd be great for my children so let's move all right so again yet another bold move first boarding a flight to go to a country thousands of miles away that you don't read that you've only got some family and friends but you know nothing about and then moving out to hampshire <laughs>
0: That's possibly in an even bigger difference, actually. Humphrey. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> and um, and you know, just telling us we have to get on with it, right? And you know, and then from Basingstoke as a town, we then moved in this, into this little itty bitty village, where we were, you know, the only black family in the village. So, all the way through each step you know, having to deal with being different, having to adjust to different circumstances, having to dig deep in terms of finding resilience, right, and especially for me as the eldest, my brother was born when we lived in Basin Stoke, Um, and I still remember my first junior school and, you know, having to join midway through and not knowing anybody in that village school. And feeling very isolated and feeling very different because so I was the only black kid. You know, my sister was coming up, but I was the only black kid. And, and it was like, and nobody would talk to me, right? And what it was, actually, I still remember we had this rounders match. Um, it was like end of term rounders match. And all the kids were allowed to choose which team they wanted to go on. And guess who was stood there, not picked to go on anybody's team. And so my teacher said, well, actually, why don't you come and be on our team? Don't you worry, you're going to be on the teacher's team. Um, Now, um, coming from a a great West Indian family who loved sport, and in particular cricket, from a young age, my dad had taught us. My dad used to cut down cricket bats and then throw balls at us. Um, So we had a fantastic um, hand-eye coordination. So, In fact, my brother grew up playing cricket. I played tennis as a a youngster as well. Um, My sister played hockey. So I was well up for this rounders match. and of course, you know, started the whacking the balls all over the place. And that helped. That, after that, the kids were like, wow, you know, we want you to be on our team. Who are you? We've never spoken to you, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so sport, in a way, and that moment changed things for me in terms of me being a bit more accepted, if you like, uh, in that environment. Um, but, you know, I, through my mum and the decisions that she made... Um, I learned, if you like, to understand that I was different, but understand that I needed to adapt and it will be on me largely i mean my mum also told me know it's gonna be down to you, right, how you adapt to this situation, how you find you know and yourself through this situation. And it's okay. She she also told me it was okay to take risks because that's what she was doing. She was taking a bet, placing a risk on each time she moved. And So one of the things that happened for me is, again, there was an expectation that I would either be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, whatever. And I managed, um, I got a place at Leeds University to do law. And I remember walking home after my last A-level, still can remember that day. And, um, you know, went in and my mum, who worked night shift, was awake, waiting for me to celebrate and say, fantastic, you finished. how are you gonna spend the summer? And I had this very glum look on my face and she was like, what's up, <laughs> what's, what's up? And why, are you so ha- why aren't you happy? And I said, because I've decided I don't wanna do law anymore
0: uh oh (laughs) what was her what was her reaction to that
1: she was she just said do you still want to go to university and i said yeah i definitely do she said what do you want to do i said mom i don't know i don't know i don't know what i want to be i don't know what i want to do um and she said it's okay right don't panic it's okay you will get a place at university um, I had a friend who was older than me she came home for the summer she was at Bour- Bournemouth Bournemouth Poly
0: that's my uh that's where I went as well it was was it a poly yeah remember. Bournemouth
1: Poly then university and so and she said to me look um and she was having a fantastic time there by the sea as you'll know <laughs> and
0: um, well, not in the winter just <laughs> but yeah.
1: yeah it can be a bit gray but she said to me, um, you know that she was having a great time. And I said to my mum, I think I'd like to go there. It's not too far from home, based in Stoke, Bournemouth. Um, and I said, you know, I'd like to go there. So I went through clearing, saw business studies, thought I'm going to do that. It gave me options, right, Romilly. So, and that again is one of my, I suppose, one of the, one of the things that are inherent in me is I always think, where could this step take me? where could it take me next? What doors might open that I could walk through or with help from others or, you know, of my own accord? And business studies meant I could still do a conversion course and do law. So it kept the door open on law. But it also introduced me to different things, you know, and because I was thinking back then, I wanted to be a management consultant, maybe, not technology. And then in my sandwich year, I did my IBM, I did a my sandwich year at IBM um, and that introduced me to tech. So, you know, there are some themes through that, you know, parents who were Windrush, who took the step to move to the UK, and, you know, who then might, you know, a mother who was not afraid to take calculated risk, yeah, and not afraid to put herself and her family into situations where they needed to not fight for survival, but they needed to it helped us to build resilience and become resourceful and um, and then instill that in us. Right. And so I think those are our themes. I think the other thing for me being the eldest of three, it's a big piece of caring that runs through me. And you know, if I think back to that Rounders match and having the opportunity to then become a team member and being part of teams, it's another thing that, you know, is a big part of me.
0: That Rounders match. um. You didn't just take the opportunity to join, presumably, the enemy team, the <laughs> teachers team. <laughs> you had, had the to... confidence, <laughs> presumably, to to take that on. How important was confidence and forming that kind of confidence? Um, was that born in you, or did you just kind of learn to develop that, uh, the confidence to take risks? And we'll talk more about risk, but uh, having that confidence then.
1: I think that there must be something in me, innate, around confidence but there it's like is it thinking about it and talking talking to you about it absolutely there's got to be something in in me however the but is that one of my big struggles through my life is my shyness right um and you know because i had to battle my shyness yeah, even from a, a young child and I still remember people even you know visitors to our home I'd go and hide under the bed and my sister and my brother would be like dragging yeah. me out just like, come <laughs> out um and say hello um but you know to walk the path I have there must be something in me and I think it it may be a belief right some sort of you know, belief in myself of some sort that, you know, again, I, comes from my family. Um, and then the shyness is something I've had to deal with. Uh, but yeah, there must have been, again, thinking back to that rounders match, some sort of belief. And, and also there's a stubbornness, I think. It's like, you know, I'm going to have a go, right? I'm going to have a go. Um, mm. I'm not going to be sitting on the edge watching this thing. Yeah, i've been given an opportunity what that teacher did was gave me an opportunity Right?
0: may not have may not have realized it, it might have just been out of pity um,
1: <laughs> it probably little was. did they know <laughs> <laughs> it probably was um you know it, it gave me an opportunity and it's like take the opportunity right what you know don't deprive yourself of what good could come. I mean, I could have got hit on the nose by the ball. You never know. But, you know, what, what, what could come from that opportunity? And, and again, it's like, why not, right? This is, again, one of the things that, you know, talk about with people, you know, um, in similar settings and conversations. It's about you know, opportunities. It's like when I, you know, I moved to the US. Um, that was an opportunity, right? I could have said no. I'm gonna say no. You know, I'm gonna stay hunkered down in in deepest darkest Surrey. Um, but I didn't. You know, I took the opportunity, um, to move there and take myself well out of my comfort zone. And that opportunity in that rounders match again took me out of my comfort zone. Right. Yeah. But there must be something I I believe in inside me which is related to you can do this. Right. And again, I think that comes from my parents, you know.
0: What kind of obstacles do you think you might have faced during the path of your career? Did Did you find extra resi- or perceive extra resistance on your on your journey?
1: Um, I didn't perceive extra resistance. I felt there were some obstacles, absolutely obstacles that I had to overcome. I mean, things like stand out for me. As you know, I described that when I started. Well, back when two thousand eight, when I started at Avner, but even before that, if I think about EY, um, and then into Cap Gemini, you know, I had one of those moments. Um, actually, when I was starting at EY, where I was going up in the lift, um, and it was either my first or second day, so very early on as a young consultant. And a gentleman who was in the lift um, uh, said to me, you know, as the lift doors opened, he said, "Oh, you know, you, you know, if you're looking for the secretarial pool, you know, <laughs> you'll find <laughs> How it. I, you know, Yeah, you know, these things people say—they're cliches, but they are real life experiences. Right?
0: Well, they're, they're cliches for a reason. The, the cliches become cliches because they're repeated often. They
1: are. Uh, That's right. So I had that. So, you know, at that sort of circumstance of thinking, I'm not really sure I'm going to belong here. um, Yeah. And I said to him, you know, actually, I'm a new consultant, and I'm heading off to um, meet with my team. And again, had the courage to (laughs) (laughs) say, actually, no, I'm going that way. Um, But that sense of, struggling to belong, if you like, because I am different. And therefore, when people see me, the expectations that they have, in that case, it was, you know, you're part of the secretarial pool, um, means that you work incredibly hard to bust through whatever those perceptions or those expectations might be, right? that means then that you're constantly seeking perfection perfection gets in the way of progress as we all know perfection doesn't necessarily create for a healthy environment either for you or your team and it's really important that's one of my lessons actually that i learned is if i'm a perfectionist then that puts inordinate pressure on my team as well um and that is one of the if you like one of the the challenges, if you like, or one of the one of the obstacles uh, to use your word, that I had to overcome is like being more comfortable with not being perfect, right? right? And and therefore, what that allowed me to do would be to get things done faster, to test ideas faster. Being comfortable with that, being comfortable with the fact that it's okay to, you know, potentially fail at something. Um, because it meant I got feedback, I got input, my team got feedback, we got input, um, you know. And so that was one of my big things, right? And it's okay, you don't need to be completely perfect. Um, and and so because it does get in the way. The second one for me, I talked about my shyness um, and having to get to a place where I just accept it's part of me. Um, and um, but also to learn the unintended consequences or the sorry the consequences of being shy and again in terms of your voice not being heard and therefore you're not able to contribute or you're not adding your ideas to that particular idea which could enhance the whole idea of the situation as a leader if I'm my voice isn't heard the team I'm representing whether that's two people five people ten people a thousand thousands of people as it is today, they're not being heard. Right. So I have to overcome the shyness thing. um, And, and by putting the focus, not on me, but putting my, my the focus more on the situation. And especially as I say, as I, and it, the breakthrough was when I became a leader of people, um, that I realized, you know, how the shyness was holding me back. Um, and again, it's part of me, my, my authentic self, which means sometimes I can be a bit quirky because I'm dealing with my shyness. Um, but, you know, just get, I, I accept that and move on. So finding my voice was very important and and learning the positives of that um, and the way in which I could contribute. And again, I had um, an ally uh, at Capgemini who told me, he said, to me, look, um, don't stop contributing to team sessions, to open forums. He said, I know you find it difficult. He said, but when you do, because you don't do it a lot, people will listen to you. Yeah, and and he said, invariably, your ideas are brilliant. Yeah, but you're stopping us from benefiting from your ideas by you not contributing. So don't stop it. So he actually kind of mentored me as an ally and help me to help to create the space for me to be heard, and therefore to kind of address you know one of the biggest things I think that held me back, which is that you know being seen being being heard because of course being heard means you're being seen, which means there's even more <laughs> spotlight on me right from in terms yeah. of being different right so
0: and being seen matters, so if we sort of take a slightly a bigger macro view it's obviously it was only a couple of months ago that we were um looking at women's history month and and you know all that good stuff we published a load of stuff um one of the things that's definitely still true is there's a kind of uh a, a, a statistical context which is it's tougher to succeed especially into leadership positions as a a woman or be the double whammy of a woman of from a minority background of of one kind or another. We know that that's true. Probably the biggest thing you can do about that is to make sure that there are more and more of those people represented in those positions and being visible and being heard. Um, What proportion do you think of the obstacles that people in those categories face that is internal? You've spent a lot of time saying, look, a battle you fought was against your own sense of do I or do I not belong here based on interactions that you had. Many people can battle what's going on on the outside, but how do you elevate people on the inside so that they do have the same kind of confidence that, uh, or ability to push through that you did?
1: Mentors are really, really important. I think the, uh, there is a perception or ideas in people's minds that a mentor has to be somebody who's incredibly well-experienced, has walked through, you know, a path that you want to walk through, etc. One of the things that I talk to young people about, and I get the opportunity to talk to, for example, our intern groups around the world, and um, I talk to them about the fact that they can be mentors to each other, right? So you just look tangentially, just look left and right. Look at the people in this room, be that virtual room or around the table, as we're able to do now. Um, you know, you are a group, yeah, who can support and mentor each other. And I think that is uh, one of the fundamental opportunities. I think it's an opportunity that often we miss um, because, as I say, you're always expecting a mentor to be, you know, somebody who's you know 20 years into their career or whatever. It doesn't need to be that way. So that support group and finding your support group is a really important step. Right, and people may be you're know, from your university or if you're in an intern group, finding that support group, taking advantage as well of that being an initial network. So that's the second thing. So one, they're a support group, you can test ideas because you've got like similar experiences. Second thing is the networking opportunity, because that is also incredibly important. Um, and again for me and and it's hard and it is uncomfortable when often you go into a networking situation and you are the only one, right? Right. Um, But that is a network, yeah. That intern group is a network. You know, you'll all go on and do fantastic things in your lives. Um, But so how do you stay hold of that networking group? How do you nurture that? And how do you learn the skills around networking, um, which are really important? And we'll see you, good in future years because we all need to network right um and so that again is something which i think is really important is learning those networking skills through those networking that network opportunities that can create open doors for you potentially to find mentors find coaches find job opportunities or resources uh, connect further networking groups, because that's another thing that I've noticed now as people have got to know Pam Maynard and know what I do is I get approached to join and connect to other networks, right? Where in effect, there are more people of colour, yeah, networks that I didn't even know existed where I'll have the opportunity again to connect with groups of, you know, people who've walked a similar path to me and learn how they, you know, continue to thrive as business leaders. So, you know, look left and right. Yeah, look at the group that you're in and then look at how you can use networking would be another piece of advice I would say. And start doing that from early, as early on in your career as you can.
0: Right, and never once, and I think this applies to everybody, never once imagine that you don't belong because actually you don't know until you turn up (laughs) who belongs anywhere.
1: That's and right. That's right. The,
0: the the best thing I ever learned in those kind of contexts was: look, let's just imagine for a second that literally everybody in the room is thinking exactly the same thing as you, and uh, that just makes you the same as everybody. No one actually really wants to do this at the beginning, and it's That's only right. at the end that everyone's happy they did. Um, let's um let's expand all of that out to Avenard as an organization. I think shortly after you um, became CEO, you. Um, talked about the purpose of the organisation. Why does it matter that everything that we're talking about now, in terms of um, fostering, you know, a diverse set of uh, uh, a diverse workforce with leadership um, that represents diversity? Um, why does that matter if what you're trying to be is a successful, sustainable, innovative? company
1: so, this, um, so uh, let me start with the purpose so our purpose at Avanade is to make a genuine human impact all right and it's as simple as that and when I became CEO in 2019 in September um, I was wandering through Houston airport with Adam uh, CEO emeritus and sort of saying to him you yeah, know what is our purpose you yeah, know we're a successful uh, tech company, you know, with Microsoft at our core. Um, but, you know, what is our purpose? And that's how it landed on the make a genuine human impact. And I did that because I was thinking about, you know, what is going to signify my leadership and the Pam Maynard era as CEO in Avonard. Um, And but around making a genuine human impact, I was thinking from the perspective of not just about the work that we do for our clients and therefore the impact that they wanted to have on their customers, on their people or in the communities, uh, which were important to them, but on our people, right? So, you know, how do I, through my leadership and the decisions that I make and the strategies that we we um, pursue you know how do we ensure that the people who want to spend a chapter of their career at avenard feel that we are creating a genuine human impact for them that they're getting something from that chapter that became really really important because six months after (laughs) i took control um we got the pandemic and then a few months after that we got the unrest associated with the death of george floyd Mm. right which if you remember came on top and so not only were, pe- were, pe- were people struggling yeah from um the implications of remote working being dislocated from friends family being able to leave your home for one hour a day all of that stuff that's going on but then you know there was this whole global unrest associated with George Floyd as well Um, And the Genuine Human Impact actually served as a North Star for us. Uh, And um, in terms of guiding us to, you know, think more about the impact of the work that we wanted to have. And, but also in doing so, the impact and the opportunity we wanted to create for our people. Um, Now, in terms of creating that impact, what became really, really important through the pandemic and it's not that it wasn't put important before, but I think it was catalyzed by the pandemic. Was you know clients' need for accelerated technology change, clients' needs around digital transformation at pace, clients' needs for innovation just to keep their businesses alive. Um, and you know what? Um, from my my philosophy is is that to be able to create, if you like. Um, solutions to meet those needs at that time and always as a technology company it's about innovation The most innovative ideas though require diverse voices and perspectives
0: especially if you're focusing on human impact that's right how can you do it if you don't represent humans and
1: that's the other thing and then diverse voices from a more representative community right because again i think what clients and i'm seeing this as well as we um, if you like, extend our relationship with clients beyond just our technology, but also helping our clients to understanding more about the purposes of the, org- the clients that we're engaging with, is they want to see more diverse voices around the table. They want a more diverse team from Avenard because they tend to be they're they're striving for more diversity themselves, or they're looking at how they can in turn impact communities and create more inclusive and diverse environments around them. I also believe that if we are going to, if we are going to achieve what we're all looking to achieve around sustainability, we're not going to achieve an North Star in terms of sustainability and a more sustainable planet, if we're not inclusive.
0: No, exactly. If you leave a whole bunch of people behind, um, they will be left behind they're not included that's in right. it and therefore how can you move forward that's right yeah
1: and there are many studies as well Romilly that have been done you know which show the correlation or the relationship between having more diverse teams and impact on bottom line or impact on engagement impact on engagement etc and we've seen that in Avonard, right we've absolutely seen the impact on our employee engagement um the reduction in our attrition Um, the impact on our well-being from having a more diverse organisation and inclusive organisation, right? Because the two go hand in hand. In fact, again, I remember changing the language to being about inclusivity, so inclusion and diversity versus diversity and inclusion. And I did that very deliberately because for the diverse people I already had in the organisation, I needed to keep them. I needed them to feel like they felt included, yeah. And then they, in turn, would help me to attract more diverse talent.
0: What about at the top, at the at the tippy top, where where ultimately the folks like you need to be kind of highly visible? How, what's your perception of of how we're doing in the world in that in that context? You know, how much mo- what have we got still to do?
1: And we've got a huge amount left to <laughs> still to do. <laughs> um, But what I am seeing and I see this in Avenard, for example, my executive committee, 60, 50 or 60, 50 to 60 percent women, just over 50 percent. So maybe around 55. And and there is, you know, there are people who join Avenard, women that I speak to who say, you know, when they look up in Avenard, all they see are women. Right. They see their line managers going up being women. So in terms of leadership. I'm seeing progress in terms of leadership positions and more <clears throat> diverse leaders. I'm also seeing progress in terms of graduate intakes, interns, etc. The challenge for a lot of organisations is that middle management layer, right? So how do we retain people when they go out and take a career break for whatever reason they want to take take a career break? And then when they come back, they can continue to feel they belong. They can thrive in, especially in technology where things move so fast. Um, you know, how do we help them through that reconnecting and reestablishing themselves? So that they want to stay. It's the middle layers that we've got to continue to inspire and improve on. But I'm absolutely seeing progress. I mean, you will have heard about it as well, especially you know, I'm in the UK, you're in the UK. The progress around boards um you know that's great i think we need to and definitely gender i'd like to see us more in terms of you know the c-suite yeah especially from a color perspective right people of color we still got a way to go
0: great so the yeah i mean as long as the intake is beginning to look better you need to make sure that that middle layer doesn't yeah become the obstacle obviously decisions get made at that layer that will affect The success or not of that intake right and so that's where it needs to be to be challenged as well as providing the networks and the support that everything else that you've spoken about which can make sure that that intake understands that they're supposed to be in the room and that you can encourage them to not internally prevent themselves making those taking those risks just like your mum that's right. um, Yeah, that's To right. feel that it's worth it. Yeah. There's, a, there's a risk reward there that's yeah. actually beneficial yeah. if they do.
1: One of the things that we found, just to your point on network, that's really helped us is the creation of employee networks. Uh, so we have 15 employee networks at Avanar that covers a spectrum of diverse um, employees or diverse needs. Um, and uh, those people and they're typically led by people within the middle ranks of the organization or more junior, so not senior executives but each member of my executive committee does sponsor one of them um, because it's a learning opportunity for us is they help us to, and they help me to understand how we might need to adjust the organization so that you know we can become more inclusive because creating an inclusive environment is a real journey. um, And there's a huge amount to learn and understand because of the vast array of differences, right? And the intersections of those differences. um, And the employee networks are fantastic, both in terms of giving people an opportunity to connect with, again, a like-minded network, but then also to help leaders to learn, yeah. And I think it's now it's now something like twenty five percent of our employees are members of an employee network, Avenard. Right, and that is a huge step forward for us.
0: Well, which is just I, I'm I'm conscious that we're we're running up against um, a hard stop. You've got an important meeting with a grocery delivery. <laughs> I do. <Okay>. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I should have said that, but it's true. Um, I, I'm going to try and take take a contrary point of view just because we live in a world where um, that's become increasingly kind of bipolar in the sense that there are those who criticize these attempts at driving towards diversity. I think anyone uh, who is running progressive, interesting, successful companies understands why diversity is just important to survive and to thrive as a company. But there are those people out there, when we get into those kind of political conversations, who would say, look, this is all just some sort of weird woke agenda. If you create employee groups, aren't you just creating fragmented special interests who don't necessarily communicate with each other but just become disruptive? I think we know that, that that's kind of nonsense. but what would you what's your response to that? and maybe even in the hope that there might be leaders out there who are tempted to think in those terms, why shouldn't they? Why is that far too basic?
1: Well, you're you're quite right, it is basic, right? And it's short-sighted. Because if they want to thrive and grow as an organization, what employees are demanding more and more of employers and leaders is an environment where they feel that they can belong, right? They want an environment where they belong they want an environment where they are heard and if that isn't happening then especially in the tech industry they're walking into organizations where they can continue they can get that as well as continuing to build on their technology skills and um, careers and so i think it's a high risk strategy um and it's especially in my sector right where there is con- a continued war for talent i also think what's happening is you're holding the organization back Right. From the opportunity to learn and understand from different perspectives and therefore take that into whatever agenda you want to drive with your clients or, um, you know, the, your, any key, the key key stakeholders that you're wishing to influence. Um, you know, you're missing opportunity. Right. Do you really want to do that as a business leader? Think about what opportunities you might be able to open up. If you just had a broader perspective
0: very well said now i know we need to wrap up so one final thing and i um is is there anything you'd like to tell us that you're getting up to in the next few months that people might want to see are you going to be showing up at any events are you going to be doing anything interesting
1: so um a couple of things in fact actually i'm going to tell you about three things. Uh, first of all, June is a really important month in the incl- on the inclusion and diversity agenda. We start with Pride, so it's Pride Month, um, really excited, lots and lots of fantastic programme, a lot of energy always behind Pride. And our employee network, which drives a lot of that activity, which is called PRISM, was actually the first employee network that we had in Avenard. Uh, and so that's incredibly important it's also really important from Juneteenth because it's also Juneteenth Um, so very important milestone on the U.S. uh, agenda and then the last one is I've been invited to the Northern Lights Summit in Finland uh, where I'm actually going to be on stage talking about the whole new world and the implications of generative AI so um, yeah happy happy to be there and do that and um, really looking forward to the engagement Yeah, from whoever's listening. Yeah. And thank you to you as well. Brilliant conversation. I've really enjoyed it.
0: I have as well. So when we publish this, we will also be publishing uh, uh, some editorial on the back of this to digitalbulletin.com and um, people can engage with that as well if, if they like. But it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for giving me your time today um, and for being such a fantastic role model for all of us who went to bournemouth university um, and uh, very good luck um achieving even more success with avenard in the future
1: thank you take care